Welcome to the second episode of The Case of Virginia McGinnis. And it's all relative to the show where we talk about murder and crime in the family. I'm Kaylee, your host, and I do want to remind you before we get started that this is a true crime podcast. We do talk about crime. We talk about some disturbing things. I do have a vocabulary like a sailor. So if any of this sounds like not your thing, it is time to find something else to listen to. Otherwise, we shall continue. Before we get started, I want to begin this episode with a little bit of music from Smile Harvey. All I need is money, money. Money, money all the time. Dollar bill, cash money. The case of Virginia McGinnis, episode one, ended with the death of three-year-old Cynthia Elaine Coates and the story from Virginia's former daughter-in-law about how Virginia had tried to buy her own granddaughter. Now at this time, the now Reardon family are living in Kentucky with Virginia's second husband, Sylvester, who goes by Bud. Bud finds out that he has cancer. You guys remember Jake, the policeman that lived across the street from the Reardons? Well, he was interviewed years later. He had this to say. This is again from Heilbronner's death benefit. I quote, Jake told R.D. that he had become suspicious about Virginia two years later when Bud Reardon died. That was when the things started happening. She and her mother told me they was nurses. I didn't know that what they did for real, but they tell you right off they was practical nurses. Like to boast about it. End quote. This is not the last time that Virginia will profess her status as a practical nurse, but it's important in this instance because she uses it to validate her tending to Bud in his sickbed, and it does become an actual sickbed. With Virginia administering medication and closely guarding access in and out of the room, Bud has three boys, and by this time, the eldest two have gone to Guam to live with their mother. The youngest, Butch, had decided to stay so that he could get to know his dad. And I quote, Up until he started getting sick, we spent a lot of time together. Dad was a complete perfectionist. His head was like a vacuum. Anything gets near it, it'd suck right up. Around the house, I always felt like a Cinderella, Butch began, talking around the subject. Virginia favored Jimmy and Ronnie. They'd stay out all night drinking and raising hell. But I'd be the one who caught the yelling. You didn't mess with the Coates boys. If they beat the tar out of me, Virginia would still come to their defense. They could do no wrong in her eyes. Even if I caught hell all the time, I wanted to be with my dad. What with his being in the Navy and all, I never got the chance to know him when I was a kid. So I went to live with him in Virginia and Kentucky. I didn't care what she was like. Dad still had a lot of stuff to teach me. End quote. About 11 p.m., September 7, 1974, Virginia hauled Butch out to the rusted trailer which sat in the Reardon's backyard. She found her two sons smoking marijuana with Debbie Williams, who will eventually become very important. Virginia gave them $20 and told them to take Butch for a ride. Oh, and I quote, As Butch climbed the porch steps, he overheard Jimmy ask Ronnie, What do you suppose Ma wants us to take Butch out so bad for? Beats the hell out of me, bro, but 20 bucks is 20 bucks. I ain't gonna ask her. End quote. Jimmy drove. He continued toking and added beer to the mix. 
He drove like a maniac, and by the time they got back to the trailer about 2 a.m., Butch was surprised they and the car were all in one piece. Not too long after, Virginia was banging on the door again. I quote, Virginia's voice called, Butch. Virginia started in a friendly voice that didn't match her words. I've got bad news for you. Your father's dead. He passed away just about an hour ago. Ma's in there cleaning the body. No, he shouted. I don't believe you. I want to see him. He started to run to the house, but Virginia grabbed him by the arm and held him still. A wispy 16 years old, Butch was no match in size or strength for his stepmother. The coroner's coming soon, she continued in her controlled voice. You're just going to be in the way. Now go inside and sit in the dining room. Two or three days after my father died, Butch told R.D., Virginia held the funeral. My brothers were never notified, or my mother. When I asked about my dad's will, Virginia just said, You're too young to understand what it says. My real mom only learned about dad's death when people from Social Security called her. Virginia never probated the will or gave me the cufflinks, tie tack, or ring, or anything. She kept it all, as far as I ever knew. End quote. Um, the cufflinks, the tie tack, and ring are something that Butch and his dad talked about one-to-one, but unfortunately, I don't know if Bud wrote it down or not, because like it says, um, Virginia never probated the will and never talked to anybody about it anyway. And I quote, I didn't stick around much longer. I left with the clothes on my back and a suitcase. Afterward, I heard the house burn down and that it was supposed to have been an electrical fire. That never made sense to me either. My dad was so strict about everything being above code. He was always like that, a real perfectionist, end quote. On May 11, 1970, so a little over two years before Bud dies, he applies for life insurance. Virginia, of course, promptly requests payment after Bud's death. And I quote, The peculiar way she filled out the form itself immediately raised questions with the Navy's bureaucrats. And basically, it says, Standard Form 2800, Application for Death Benefits, was completed by Mrs. B.J. Judson, a civilian representative of Mrs. Sylvester Reardon. Mrs. Judson insisted the SF-2800 be forwarded as she had submitted without any corrections, typing, or other recognized responsibilities of this division. Forward as is, with the division's awareness of whatever deficiencies are apparent. End quote. And if you were not confused by that, I mean, I was. But basically what it boils down to is there's a mysterious B.J. Judson that comes out of nowhere acting on behalf of Virginia. She sent a very, mm, it says there were, basically it looked like there were mistakes in it. The typing wasn't very good. And forwarded as is with this division's awareness of whatever deficiencies are apparent. And what they mean by deficiencies are apparent? Well, now Keeney, we haven't talked about him yet at all, but uh, Keeney is the lawyer. He is the attorney who is in the big case that I referred to in the previous episode. The big case that kind of drew everybody's attention to Virginia McGinnis. Keeney at this point is looking over a lot of things that he's learned about Virginia, including these documents. We will get into much, much more of this case soon here, but for the purposes of illustrating how weird this document was, I'm going to continue to read, and and that is why Keeney comes out of nowhere a little bit here. I continue on, end quote, There were more than a few deficiencies, even to Keeney's unpracticed eye. 
Virginia hadn't dated the document. More importantly, she had avoided straight answers to yes-no questions. The first asked, if an executor has not been appointed, will one be appointed? The second asked, if a guardian has not been appointed, will one be appointed? A straight line had been struck through both yes and no boxes on each question. She sure couldn't be accused of giving false statements, Keeney said to himself. Virginia and her representative, Judson, did not stop there. The government form asked, if a guardian has been appointed by the court for any of the children, give the guardian's name. The answer listed Virginia as the guardian for Bud's 16-year-old son, Butch, but the word court was scratched out. For relationship to the child, Virginia wrote not stepmother, but widow, end quote. And yes, a couple of minutes ago, you did hear it right. There was another fire. And remember their neighbor, Jake? Jake was called to Cynthia Elaine's death pretty much right after he got to work that day. So I quote, Jake never got called to the Reardons again in his official capacity, but shortly after Bud died, Virginia came running over in the middle of the night. She said her house was on fire, and sure enough, it was. The whole damn place, flames shooting out of the roof, sparks flying. They stayed over to our place that night, and we all stayed up watching the fire department working away. Those boys barely managed to save the house. Not that it mattered much. He let Miller, that would be Jake, let out a short grunt of a laugh. Because a few weeks later, the house burned again. This time, I knowed for sure something was wrong. The night before, I saw a three-quarter truck and a camper out back there, and the family was loading up everything they could. Then the house burns all the way down, and one more time, Virginia comes running over in the middle of the night, just like a bat out of hell. After that second fire, they left Kentucky. Nobody kept in touch. They just disappeared. I think I might have got a letter from one of them boys asking for a letter to get him out of the pen. But Virginia, she just sold the place and then up and left. End quote. And with that segue, the boys, Ronnie and Jimmy Coates, Virginia's sons, and I quote, Debbie knew as well as anybody what Jimmy and Ronnie were capable of, but to a 17-year-old, the sheer machismo of their compulsive lawbreaking was a turn-on. She had seen Jimmy tie a black man to the back of his truck, then drive down Jefferson Hill, hollering and screaming with sadistic delight as the man's knees were ground to the bone on the asphalt. Another time, he put a loaded pistol into a man's head, forced him to his knees, and then walked away smirking. I was only kidding him, he said, end quote. I do like this. Okay, so, and I quote, Virginia's sons, James and Ronnie Coates, seemed to have racked up juvenile offenses the way some people collected 4-H ribbons, end quote. So Jimmy's offenses were what a lot of people consider petty offenses like drunk driving, which I don't feel is that petty, but you know, and assaults also not that petty, but I suppose in a lot of ways they're misdemeanors rather than felonies. Ronnie's rap sheet, however, was pretty interesting. By the time Ronnie had turned 20, he had to flee Kentucky to California to avoid trial on charges of kidnap, robbery, and burglary. Now, he had been arrested and hauled back, and back in Kentucky, Ronnie was convicted of burglary in the second degree and criminal conspiracy. So, it is suggestive that these two boys who become men, who both have rather long and rather violent rap sheets, may have had a lot of examples given to them by their mother. 
Not that I'm saying that all children who end up having a criminal path have bad parents, but in this case, considering what we do know about Virginia, she seems to be keeping the crime in the family. Now I'm going to mention one last episode of A Suspicious Death before we get into the case that started it all, and that is the death of Virginia's own mother, Mary Agnes. After they left Kentucky, they moved out to California. They moved to East Palo Alto. Virginia's mom had a house out there, and her house burned down. So she buys a house in San Diego for her and Virginia, and at that time, Virginia's new husband, who we will talk about, to live in. Three months after she bought that house, the mother dies of a heart attack, and the mother's body is cremated almost immediately. There is supposedly a policy on the mom, which Virginia claims. We don't actually have any evidence that anything happened, although there was a, again, a rumor that the house that burned down was arson. But beyond that, there's no hard evidence that the house burned down by arson or that Virginia's mother didn't actually have a heart attack or had a heart attack caused by Virginia. But again, considering her past, Between the death of Bud in 1974 of Mary Agnes in 1986, death and arson are suspiciously absent around Virginia. Knowing this woman, I suspect there were untoward things going on. However, there is nothing overt. By 1986, Virginia has married yet again to a man named Billy Joe McGinnis, and he goes by BJ. Now, BJ had a bit of a reputation, and he was known for forgery and conning women out of their possessions. He was also about as blatantly gay as you could be in the 1980s, and yet his marriage to Virginia was his fifth. Billy liked flesh. So did Virginia. And what appears to have happened is that both flimflam artists thought the other was a dupe, and both ended up with egg on their face. The real question was why they didn't just admit the error, if only to themselves, and call it quits. But this isn't what happened, and by 1986, Virginia Hoffman Coates Reardon McGinnis enters the life of a young woman named Dina Wilde. Now, Dina grew up in Kentucky. She had a sweet personality that her friends found infectious. I knew Dina in high school. Um, I met her in the 11th grade, and we became really good friends. My friend Lisa said you have to meet this girl and I said okay I'll meet her and I immediately fell in love with this chick in that she was non-judgmental she was happy she seemed to want everyone else to be happy Dina was the peacekeeper. If somebody argued or were fussing with one another, she would intercept and and just try to lighten the mood with a funny story or a silly joke. She would make herself the class clown just to make people laugh and happy. She was a wonderful type of girl and the world needs so much more of that. That came from Oxygen's accident, suicide, or murder in an episode called Fallen. Dina's biggest failing was that she wasn't shrewd. She had an IQ of only 85, and by the 10th grade, she was performing at the level of a second grader. According to her mother, Bobby Roberts, Dina just couldn't believe that anyone would be trying to deceive or hurt her. 
Dina also had a hard time understanding why she couldn't spend all her time having fun. This often caused rows between mother and daughter, resulting in Dina storming out and spending a day or two at a friend's house. On September 5th, 1986, things again are stormy at the home of Bobby Roberts. But this time, Dina leaves without even a note. Bobby is worried but figures Dina will be back soon. The next day, Dina calls saying that she has actually gone and gotten married to her high school boyfriend, Jay Wilde, and was moving with him to San Diego, where he was stationed in the Navy. Bobby only heard from Dina sporadically after that, and part of the problem was that Dina's address kept changing. Then, four months later, Dina calls her mother to say that she and Jay had argued about money and were going to separate. Okay, now, hold up. Bobby can't consistently communicate with her daughter in part because her address keeps changing when her husband is stationed at the San Diego Naval Base? That makes little to no sense. If he's in the Navy, he's either in military housing or at sea. Either way, Dina should have a steady address. Granted, they eloped, so the Naval family housing may not have been immediately ready, but Dina said they were going to live apart, suggesting that they were living together, and a Navy sailor wouldn't be couch surfing, let alone with his new wife. Moving on. Dina tells her mom she has a new friend named Jimmy. You see where this is going, right? She's going to move in with him and his parents, Virginia and Billy Joe McGinnis, who are also quote-unquote originally from Kentucky. Again, Bobby Roberts has trouble getting in contact with her daughter. One time she does reach her, Dina tells her to stop calling so much because the calls are driving the McGinnises crazy. One month later, so this is now February of 1987, just five months after Dina's elopement, she's suddenly back in Kentucky. Within days, mother and daughter are bickering. This time, Bobby grabs Dina's purse, which has Dina's return ticket to California in it, and Dina storms out of the house. The next Bobby knows anything about her daughter is in April. She gets a call from the Monterey County coroner telling her that Dina has fallen off a cliff in California and she is dead. Bobby is told this was an accident and she fell while sightseeing at Big Sur. Now Dina is brought back to Kentucky for burial. Bobby pays for the funeral out of pocket and she filed for the small payout on the burial policy she had on her daughter, $3,500. Three months later in July, Bobby still hasn't been paid and on a teacher's salary, her finances are straining. After talking with a friend, she gets the name of an attorney who she is hoping can clear up whatever the problem is his name is Steve Keeney. She seeks him out at church, of all places. But this turns out to be the trick, because Keeney can't bring himself to turn away this woman in church. Part of the reason he even considers turning her way is that Keeney is a corporate attorney. He does contract law, he does do insurance, but the policies that he does deal with are in the seven or more figure range, not $3,500. So Bobby Roberts' claim is well outside of his purview. But he figures it will just take a sternly worded letter written on letterhead to sort it out. First, he calls the insurance company and is told that they are waiting on a death certificate, which is why they haven't paid out. So Keeney calls Monterey County, California to ask about what the holdup is. And Monterey says it has been ruled an accidental death, but the coroner is not prepared to release the death certificate. Weird, right? Now, what this means is that the case is still open, but Keeney is told by one Sergeant Brown, 
If he sends a letter and a check for $7.50, Monterey will send him a copy of the case report and a copy of the death certificate when they're available. And so he gets his secretary, Sarah West, to do just that. About three weeks later, he has not seen the paperwork, but he does get a call from Sergeant Brown saying the insurance company has been calling Monterey County directly, trying to get the death certificate. He tells Keeney that one of the head honchos at State Farm has been calling about a $35,000 policy on Dina. And Keeney says, and I quote, also this is from Death Benefit, Did I hear that right, Keeney cued in? You sure you're not talking about Amex? The Kentucky Outfit. They're my client's company, not State Farm. No way. A guy named Mike Hatch at State Farm called just yesterday, one of their head honchos, chief of life claims. Hatch said there's a $35,000 life insurance policy on Dina and the primary beneficiary is, wait for it, James Coates, Dina's fiancé-to-be, whatever that is, end quote. And oh, it gets better. And I quote, Dina was already married. If she was planning to get divorced and remarried, my client would have known. Well, Hatch over at State Farm says the girl came in and filled out a life insurance application naming Coates beneficiary. Once it was approved, Virginia McGinnis came back and paid for the policy one day before the girl died. Excuse me, Sergeant. Keeney sat up at his desk and laid down a cigar and reached for a pen. Maybe I'm the one who's a little out of step here. Did you say one day before she died? End quote. Well, after that information, Keeney knows he has to talk to Bobby. They go for a meal. And he lays out the facts that he knows so far anyway about Dina's death and tells her about this new life insurance policy. Bobby's shocked Dina wouldn't buy insurance. She also doesn't believe that the fall ever really made sense. But she's really shocked and doesn't know how anyone could do such a thing. She says, and I quote, You know, Mr. Keeney, at first I was so happy Dina had found some older people to live with in San Diego. Virginia had even lived in Louisville, which made me feel better. Now, I just don't know what to think. Bobby, he finally spoke up, he being Keeney. We can't jump to any conclusions about what happened in Monterey, but I did speak with State Farm yesterday. I told them you may want to make a claim for Dina's life insurance. I don't want a dime of that money, she cut in vehemently. The whole idea makes me sick. I just want to know how my daughter died. That's going to take time. But if we tie up the claim, the McGinnises and James Coates will wait to see what happens, and that will buy the time we need to find out some hard facts. It's entirely possible this is all one terrible misunderstanding. End quote. I insert here. (laughs) He does not know Virginia, does he? They part ways and Keeney tells her to call him in a day or two to make a decision about what she wants to do. Because if she if she fights this insurance claim again, like you said, he can tie up, hopefully tie up the McGinnises and give them more time to figure out what what the fuck is going on. And I quote, everything would surely turn out to be one ghastly misunderstanding. End quote. A couple days later. Bobby calls Keeney and says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Keeney has to take a minute to think, and then he decides that the best thing to do is, one, they need to wait to see what State Farm pulls up. And two, he asks Bobby to gather together any facts, anything that would, you know, anything that would help them know anything about Dina, about the McGinnises, 
letters, pictures. Bobby tells him that she does have one thing that would be possibly could be important, that Virginia had sent her some photos that they had taken when they were out at Big Sur. And Keeney's excited. He says, yeah, bring those over right away. In the interim, Dina's death certificate, pathologist's report, and the coroner's register arrived. And he starts dinging through them. And he finds some odd things. He finally realizes why they may have held on to things a little longer out in Monterey County than would have been normal for the standard accidental case. Dina's blood and urine both tested negative for alcohol or narcotics. There was nicotine, but Dina smoked, so that was nothing new. However, she did have something in her blood called Elevil, or at least the components of Elevil, which are amitriptyline and nortriptyline. And he does have to make a call to a neuropharmacologist to find out what the heck that is. Nowadays, I think we do hear a lot about Elevil. I've, I've seen commercials for it. Um, I've actually been on both of those drugs. I don't recommend it. But at that time, Keeney has to give a call and find out what, what the hell these are for. And he's told that they are components of Elevil, that they are used in treating depression, supposedly a mood elevator. They can make you a bit drowsy, and if you're not used to it at all, they can make you really drowsy at first. Keeney asks, well, if she's got that in her system, is she gonna, is that gonna make her, you know, dizzy or uncoordinated? Would that contribute to the fall? And he's told, yeah, that, that's entirely possible. He reads the report on all of the various injuries to her body. And this is part of the report, and I quote, On April 2nd, 1987, at about 1621 hours, Dina Wilde, a.k.a. Hubbard, 20 years old, died when she reportedly fell from a cliff just south of Big Sur. Wilde was visiting the area of Big Sur with friends, Billy and Virginia McGinnis from San Diego. Wilde had been staying with the McGinnises for only a couple of months when she was dating their son. She stopped seeing their son and moved in with the McGinnises. Mr. and Mrs. McGinnis knew that Wilde had never seen, and that's an error in the document, much of California and offered to take a trip, which would include San Francisco and the Monterey coastline. The McGinnises left San Diego early on the 2nd of April and traveled up State Road 1. Periodically, they would stop and take photographs and ate lunch in San Luis Obispo. They stopped along Highway 1 near the Coast Gallery to take photos of the sunset and the ocean. End quote. The McGinnises explained that while they were standing along the side near the Big Sur cliff, they decided that they were done, they were tired, and so they turned and, and started to walk towards the car. And Dina had been wearing these blue high-heeled shoes, which on the one hand is not unusual for her because she was apparently known to love high heels. However, it did seem kind of an odd choice when you're going to be out in the rugged area in the California mountains. But they turned around to go back to the car, and by the time they got there, Dina hadn't caught up, and they and they turned back around to see, you know, how far behind she was, and they couldn't see her anywhere. Um, neither of them could see her at all when they looked over the edge of the cliff, but they did see one of the high-heeled shoes over the edge, about 20 feet below. And then they finally, you know, looked out a bit further and saw her lying on the rocks at the bottom of the cliff. They immediately went to the Coast Gallery, which is a business down the mountain, to call for help. And the Monterey search and rescue team was dispatched, and they were able to recover Dina's body at about 390 feet below. The conclusion was that uh, Dina may have lost her balance due to the loose soil and her high-heeled shoes, causing her to fall over the cliff. The rest of the report does have quite a bit of that quite a bit more interesting things in them. 
I don't want to get too far into this right now because we are nearing the end of our time. I want to have enough time to go through it, at least the important highlights with you, plus get to the trial which ended up making history. So that is where I am going to leave you for this episode. Thank you for listening to this second episode of Virginia McGinnis and all of her insane exploits. I will leave you with a little song from The Who, and I'll catch you next time on It's All Relative.